Welcome in to the At The Yard Podcast. Today's guest is University of Arizona head coach Jay Johnson. He's going to share some insight into his career path, the impact of the cancellation of the spring season, and all things Wildcats baseball. All that and much more on episode 45 of the At The Yard Podcast. Welcome back to the At The Yard Podcast. Really pumped about today's guest, University of Arizona head coach Jay Johnson joins me on the podcast. Jay, how's it going, man? Thanks for being on the podcast. Les, thanks for having me on. It's great to be on with you. Awesome. Yeah, kind of a crazy time right now with, you know, everything that's going on in our world and, you know, how you holding up personally, you know, and then from, you know, a coaching standpoint, you know, how, how are you guys holding up with the team? And I'm assuming you guys are doing meetings virtually and all that good stuff, but, but, you know, how's it been for you this last oh, going on two months now? Yeah, uh, we're doing good health wise. I appreciate you asking. We are a uh, different time. I mean, if you think about it and a lot of coaches and players are going through this right now, it's the first time a lot of us have been without a baseball season in the spring. So that's a big uh, transition a lot of change uh, right now where we're at is we are in our dead week leading up to finals next week. So we turned our players loose as of last week to make sure that they could focus on their academics and finishing up the semester. And prior to that, we were doing a bunch of meetings with them. I think it's good for them to see everybody's faces, even if it's through a computer screen and try to be as productive and as positive as we possibly can. I think when you mention holding up, I think all of us are definitely missing that competitive element that we get through baseball. And yes, I would love to be, I think we actually would be on the road at Sacramento state tonight playing, following a series at Cal. And we obviously would rather be there than in, in this situation, but we're, we're doing good considering. Yeah. So on the academic side, I mean, have you heard what have you heard from guy from your players right like has it been somewhat of an easy transition for them because i gotta i gotta imagine it's pretty weird you know doing all their classes online for for some guys at least and you know who may not have done that in the past and you know doing the testing and you know the accountability on all of that's got to be a little bit different what are you hearing from those guys yeah they're doing a good job well, the biggest difference is we have really good academic support here at Arizona for our players and a good academic support center. And with that, those guys are in there all the time and, and getting tutored and counseled and all of those types of things. So they're having to do that virtually too, which is just a, a little bit of an adjustment. But we have a good system in place with our coaching staff as far as checking in and making sure that all of that stuff is on the rails and, you know, in the spring, a lot of our classes end up online as it is to accommodate for travel and, and being away for weekends and those types of things. So some of them have, have transitioned pretty seamlessly. It's, it's definitely different. We're close to the finish line here, and, and I expect our, our players to be successful. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, so, so, Jay, let, let's jump into to your path here, your, your, you know, your coaching career here. But let's start. You were a player at Oroville High School. Your dad was a football coach there. Did you play football at Oroville, or were you just a baseball-only guy? No, I actually was old school. I played uh, four sports for two years and then three sports for all four years. And, yeah, I grew up in the house of a football coach. I actually was a much better football player than baseball player. 
and uh, probably am better suited to to be a football coach than a baseball <laughs> coach. But you know, regardless of being a good running back in the northern section at five foot seven and 165 pounds, I quickly learned that guys of my stature weren't winning the Heisman Trophy. And so, if I wanted to continue my athletic career, it was going to be done on the baseball diamond and. So that's ultimately what I ended up choosing and to do in college. And um, yeah, I, I, I missed that uh, that small town vibe of you know players growing up and playing every sport and and doing both at the same time throughout the summer in terms of training for football and, and playing baseball. Those were those were some very good times in my life. Yeah. So after Oroville, you head over to, to Shasta College where you spent two years, and you're the most valuable defensive player up there for the second year with. What led you to the JC route? I mean, was it was it your only option per se, or was it something that you felt potentially could make you better as a not only a player but as a person as well? Yeah, I think uh, growing up in a small town, and, and I mentioned you know playing every sport based on what season it was in that period of time, and, and certainly where I grew up, the the specialization wasn't really a thing. It was you know in the fall you play football, in the winter you play basketball in the spring you play baseball and so i had worked hard but i'd never really dedicated myself to baseball or one thing maybe the way that players do today so i had a lot of catching up to do you know in terms of development and uh junior college allowed me you know the opportunity to just focus on baseball and it was really a good formative time and i had some really good coaches there that piqued my interest in coaching more and, and, and ultimately led me down this path and, and really learned a lot. And I think, uh, you know, for a lot of young players out there, everybody wants to go to a four-year school. I was no different, but uh, that wasn't in the cards, and, and junior college baseball ended up being a really positive thing for me. Do you think that that decision is easier when you were growing up than it may be today with all the social media and, you know, kids blasting out, oh, I got this offer, that offer, and so-and-so, or, you know, the just the where recruiting is, you know, in today's day and age. Do you think going the JC route, uh, it, it almost has a, a negative stigma nowadays, right? I mean, but do you think when you were going through it that it was an easy decision, right? Like, it, it's like, hey, this makes sense for me. Yeah, no, no question about it. I think, uh, and just some encouragement to to players in regards to that, you shouldn't be choosing the most important decision of your life to this point of where you're going to college on what other people will think about it based on what you put out on social media. Yeah. You yeah. should be doing it for the, the the fit and the step in attaining your goals and what you want to achieve. And yeah, back in that time, we certainly didn't have to deal with any of those things and frankly it was what was best for me i was a decent student a little better than average but not spectacular i was a decent player certainly not a a pac-12 type player and really like i said needed to to focus my efforts on just one thing and and it allowed me to do that and, and set me on a really good path for my baseball career and my life and and it is a really good option, and, and I'm glad uh, glad that that's the path that I chose. I think, I think it takes a lot of self-awareness to be able to come to that decision, too, and, and I think that's missing quite a bit today. But after Shasta, you head over to Point Loma Nazarene and, you know, two-year starter there as a second baseman, hitting 326 as a senior. And 
I mean, how did that prepare you for, you know, you had a year to kind of finish after you, you finished up your eligibility. Uh, you had some time to finish up your degree. Uh, and then you are a student undergrad assistant. What was, at what point, I guess, during your junior or senior year, maybe even back to your JC days, did you say, hey, coaching baseball is something I think I want to do for, you know, as a career? Yeah, uh, like I said, that that probably started a long long before that. And, and growing up uh, in my house with with my dad as a very successful you know football and track coach, and just kind of watching him. I mean, I grew up just wanting to to be like him. And what changed a little bit was I got to play at a higher level of baseball, which obviously allowed me to make some contacts with some people, learn the game at a higher level. And with that, uh, you know, kind of the passion, I would say, for, for coaching from growing up and then getting to play college baseball, it probably led me down a baseball path. But really, you know, my whole life, I think I thought about being a, a business major for about 10 minutes and realized how difficult those classes were. And then, you know, quickly changed to being a physical education major, like Walmart, to lead me down a path towards coaching. But yeah, I was I was very lucky. I mentioned I had good coaches in um, junior college, and then at Point Loma, you know, Scott Sarber was my head coach and, and coached me, and then ultimately gave me my first job there. And he was a, a great baseball mind, and, and we worked incredibly well together. And uh, really, once I got in the door of, of coaching in college, it was like this is for sure what I'm going to do. So, how, how does a guy go from a student undergrad assistant? to what three four years later the head coach at Point Loma Nazarene take us through that process yeah um you know I was very fortunate I I, I took a, a path you know it took me a little longer to finish college than it probably should have relative to being a, a transfer and then going to a private school most people that spend more than four years in in college or undergrad they end up being doctors that wasn't for. <laughs> yeah for me, but, uh, I had a good experience at Point Loma, really enjoyed playing there. And then, uh, really just dove right in, got an opportunity to be an undergrad assistant. And then a position came open the very next year. And it was, I think it was for $3,000 or $6,000. I can't remember like the stipend to be an assistant coach at Point Loma. And, uh, coach Sarver gave me that opportunity. And when I say gave me the opportunity, I got a very unique opportunity that most young coaches don't get. I mean, I was 24 years old, I think. I was coaching third base. I was running the offense. I was doing all the recruiting. And that was a really unbelievable training ground for me to kind of learn on the fly while doing it. And I know a lot of coaches don't get that. And then he decided to to move on and, and do some other things with his life. And We'd had some success, went to the NAI World Series, were a game away from playing for the national championship. And to be honest, I wasn't their first choice. We had won a lot of games over the three years. I was an assistant coach, but they actually hired somebody else, and then he decided to not do the job. And then I think they went to their second choice, and then their third choice, and then <laughs> their fourth choice, and they ultimately got got stuck with me, which is uh, one of the best blessings of my coaching journey, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you compile a 37-16 and 16 record there, and you, you do pretty well at, at Point Loma. And, and then 
you make the move over to USD under Coach Hill. And, I mean, we'll get into the successes you guys had there, but was that a difficult transition for you, kind of leave behind the alma mater and, and you know, go, you know, across the across the I-5 there over to, to USD? And, and, I mean, obviously you're going from NAIA to Division One, so that was probably really enticing. But what was that process like for you? You know, honestly, I get asked about that a lot, and it was the most difficult decision I've ever made in my coaching journey. I love Point Loma. I mean, I'll always consider that kind of my home base. I loved being a head coach, you know, being 27 years old. We had a great program going. I knew we were going to have really good teams the next, probably the next couple years, and it really built that thing to be sustainable, you know, power at what was the time the NAIA but I got a lot of coach Hill first off uh you know called me and gave me the opportunity I remember right where I was sitting when I saw his name come across my phone and I knew they had a position open and I'd got a lot of counsel I remember very specifically some of the people I talked to and said hey I'm really struggling with this and you know, Larry Lee at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo actually was a coach that I talked to, and he said, hey, I'm sure you like being a head coach, but if you ever want to be a Division One head coach, this is a move you probably have to make. Hmm. And by doing that, it, it was ultimately ended up being the best decision that I ever made, but at the time, it was a really, really difficult decision. I bet. And then you guys had a lot of success there, you know, in, in your time there for regionals. I mean, you coached a number of, of high-level prospects, uh, one pretty famous guy there. And and just overall, I mean, you saw that program go from, uh, you know, whatever it was before you got there to, you know, you guys helped elevate it to, I mean, it, it's it's a it's a nationally known program now, right? I mean, the, the, the facility improvements, all of that stuff. I mean, how did that prepare you for what eventually became your next step in transitioning over to uh, University of Nevada, where you were named the head coach? You know, first off, I'm going to correct you. We actually went to six regionals oh. in, in eight years at USD. And the only reason I bring that up is as, as Division One coaches, it is really hard to get to the NCAA tournament. And that's some, that time in my life was probably uh, the most uh, profound in terms of my development as a coach. Uh, coach Hill is not only, you know, one of, if not my best friend in the world, he is exceptional at what he does. And I got a firsthand look of how a program should be run from him and learned a ton from him. At the same time, he gave me the freedom to do everything I could do to make us as good as, as we could be. And I mentioned at Point Loma, getting to learn on the fly and, and make decisions and, you know, successes, failures. I was afforded that opportunity at USD while getting to learn from someone who I consider to be one of the best baseball coaches at any level uh, for an eight-year period. So in the eight years was significant because it was right from the start. Um, I'll never forget the very first weekend we were there, Texas was coming off the national championship in 2005 and coach Garrido brought his, his team to San Diego and, and we swept them at home. And it was like, we immediately that weekend became a national program. A couple weeks later, we beat David Price, uh, in a tournament at, from Vanderbilt at 
USC. We beat Tim Lincecum that year at from the University of Washington. And there was just a lot of things in that initial year that built a really strong foundation, followed it up. We were a national seed the following year in the NCAA tournament, hosted a regional, which if you think about doing that at a West Coast Conference school, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. It's almost yeah. impossible nowadays. And then to kind of have to reload it, rebuild it, we had a year, I think, in 2010 where we had 10 players drafted uh, and then, you know, followed that up with, you know, playing in a, a few regional championships. And, um, you know, just a great time. I just I, I, I'll, I'll always look back on that as a really fond time of, of a time I got to really develop and really contribute to something that was really special. Well, you, you've really made a name as, as a, you know, a fantastic recruiter and rightfully so. And. I mean, I got to imagine that that first year at USD, that that success right out the box, I mean, that had to help right open some doors for you with with recruits, potential recruits, uh, and and then obviously your experience at Point Loma. But how do you compare recruiting to an NAIA school where you did it for a few years to, you know, now coming into you guys are, you know, your first year, like you said, bam, we're a national brand. We sweep Texas. And now you're, you're recruiting to, you know, USD on the division one level. What, what is, what are some of the similarities and some of the challenges uh, for each different level? Yeah. The similarities, first off, recruiting is, is really about relationships and, and and work ethic and your ability to relate to players. So in that regard, it wasn't that much different in terms of where you're going to put in the work. And I, I got a chance to work alongside um, Eric Valenzuela at the time was our other assistant coach, and that who is also one of my best friends in the world. And we both had a burning desire to get that program to be as good as it could be. Uh, and, and really, you know, help Coach Hill elevate it. And so there was no staff that was going to outwork us. I mean, it was an every day of, of the summer thing. He was one place. I was the other place. Um, so that was the first part. I think uh, the relationships, building relationships with some really quality players. And I think the other, if you will, say attitude that we took on at that time was there's nobody that is too good for us. Like we are going to go after the very best players and put work in to try to get them, try to relate to them at a high level and help show them at that time that San Diego was the best place for them to achieve the goals that they wanted to achieve in their baseball career and had a ton of success. And, you know, one of my things that I'll always be proud of is in the class of 2007, we had the number one recruiting class in the entire country. I think it was per Baseball America at the time. And again, you put that alongside, um, you know, the LSUs, the Texases of the world to see this little private school have the number one baseball recruiting class in the country. Um, that's something I'll always be really proud of. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I think that attitude of, of going after the best player, I mean, I think that's that still holds true for both you and Eval. Uh, so 2014, you are named the head coach at University of Nevada, um, first Division One head coaching gig. I mean, just eight short years later, right? I mean, after Larry Lee tells you, if you ever want to do that, you should probably take this job. Um, walk us through that. And, and, you know, you guys had just a boatload of success there, particularly in the second year. Uh, but walk us through going from, 
you know, being the the recruiting guy or the the assistant coach at USD to now it's it's on you, right? I mean, the buck stops with you as the head coach, and so walk us through that transition for you. Yeah, um, it, it was it was great actually. I, I had felt like I'd done a good job of being patient and not you know always looking for the next thing and just kind of immersing myself in what was best for USD baseball for a long time. And we were playing in the uh, West Coast Conference Championship game in the tournament, and I can't even remember who it was. Like somebody just said, hey, did you hear Gary Powers just retired at Nevada? I was like, oh, wow, that's a great coach, won over 900 games. You know, and, and really nothing was going through my mind at that time because we were in a championship game, which we ended up winning in a really good game and exciting night and good accomplishment. And then a week later, we were in the regionals at UCLA, and it was the year they won the national championship, 2013. And they beat us uh, in the uh, championship game. Grant Watson, left-handed pitcher, just completely shredded us. Like, I think we got, (laughs) yeah, I mean, and we almost had him at USD, so that made it worse. <laughs> so you know, we lost that game. You know, we had a, a great team that year. Chris Bryant. You know, I mean, a bunch of pl- pro players: Connor Joe, Andrew Daniel. I mean, Aunt Louis Lekic, On and on and on. Really special team. And we were out there in the outfield talking after the game, and it was just like, man, this is this was a really special deal. And I just kind of had this feeling like, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's time. You know what I mean to to look at something else and nothing had happened to that point in time. But I remember thinking, you know, this was a really cool deal, but you know, maybe, maybe it's time to, to potentially look at something. Then a couple days later, uh, I got a phone call from Doug Newth, the AD at the university of Nevada and said, Hey, you've been recommended pretty highly. We'd like you to consider, you know, coming up for an interview and, uh, talking about our job with us. I was from, Originally, obviously, from Northern California, so it was only uh, a couple hours away from where I grew up, and I always thought of Nevada as a place that you could have some success at and felt like I had an idea of how we were going to get that going and a really good blueprint and uh, had a Skype uh, interview, and then he called me the day after the Skype interview and said, hey... (laughs) We want you to be one of the, the finalists for this thing, but let me be very clear. When you're coming up here, I want to do what I can to, to make you our next head coach. And um, was really excited about that. I, I love the town of Reno, and uh, that was a really special two years. And, you know, obviously coming to Arizona is my lifetime dream job. You know, it wasn't as easy as it seemed leaving Nevada because of where we were headed, how well I was treated there, and uh, a really awesome awesome couple years where we did some special things i I gotta ask what was what was the conversation like with coach hill when you said hey i got this call they want me to interview i mean i gotta imagine he was fully supportive of you but that had to be a tough conversation for you you know he's the best and and like i said i'm only in the position i am today because of that time and getting to learn from him and I think there was a sense of, hey, I never want you to leave, and I want to do this thing together for as long as we can. And and I felt the same way, frankly. There was no reason to look for anything else. And I actually passed up a different opportunity the year before. Um, 
and, and stayed for that 2013 season. And we just talked about it. And he's like, Hey man, you're, you're ready to do this. There's no, I don't want you to leave, but if this is the spot you feel like you want to go, then, you know, I'm going to support you 100%. And there's no doubt in my mind, he was also a huge reason why I got that opportunity in terms of, you know, the people in Nevada talking with him and, and he was fully supportive. And, uh, you know, to this day, you know, when I get on D one baseball.com after one of our games, the first score I look at is, you know, USDs to see how they did that night. And, and like I said, I, I couldn't, uh, I can't, I, I could never pay him back for what I learned there and then helping me with that next opportunity. That's awesome. So 2015, Jay, I saw this stat and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but 13 and one in three game series. That sounds right. <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh, dude. Like, how, how? <laughs> how do you guys do that? You guys go 22 and seven in league and win the first ever conference title for Reno, but man, 13 and one in three game series. Yeah, that was a, a special team. You know, it's, it's one of those things. And we all have these time periods in our life where everything goes right and everything lines up exactly the way that it needed to, for that team to be successful. Uh, you know, the first part of it, I would say is we had a couple really good junior hitters the year before that were already in the program before I went there, Austin Byler and QB Meyer. And they decided to come back for their senior year. Austin was actually drafted in the ninth round and was like the only player in the top 10 rounds that decided not to sign. And he's a, he was a special hitter and QB, I think led the country in doubles the year before we had a really potent offense. Uh, Trenton Brooks, who's a San Diego kid, uh, Nevada had signed him prior to me, you know, getting the job. And like, as soon as I got the job, I like legitimately flew right back to San Diego and drove straight to his house to make sure that that was going to stay intact because <laughs> I knew how good a player he was. Um, and then there was a, a group of kids we were recruiting at the time at, uh, USD, uh, Cal Stevenson, who's in, uh, with the, the Tampa Bay Rays, he actually followed me to Nevada and, and came and played for us at Arizona as well. Uh, came in and was the Mountain West Freshman of the Year. Um, Jordan Pierce, Grant Fennell, both San Diego guys as well, came up there. Jojo Romero, who will probably be in the big leagues this year with the Phillies we recruited. We just, like, everything that had to go right for us to be that good, that fast, happened we hit on all these recruits that probably never would have considered nevada uh, we got our best players returned from the, the first year which we really built a solid culture and it, it was it was awesome i mean it was a very dominating team in, in every sense of of the word and you know that's something i'm really proud of you know nevada had never won a mountain west championship in any sport prior to that 2015 you know baseball championship and uh it was just it was just a perfect storm and a lot of things went right. Yeah, so you, you mentioned earlier, you know, you're you're at your dream job, right? Arizona, you're in the Pac-12, and you said you you did say that it wasn't easy to leave Nevada uh, for Arizona, but ultimately, what was it that 
put Arizona over the top when that whole process came down. I'm assuming it was similar to when Nevada called you and said, hey, we're interested in you interviewing. Uh, but what what was it that ultimately set Nevada and over the top for you? And you said, I've got to take this job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you talking relative to Arizona? When that- uh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, relative uh, to Arizona, you taking the Arizona job. You know, what, what was it about Arizona that ultimately you yeah. said, man, I got to take this job? Yeah, I think um, it was it was kind of an ironic time. Um, I legitimately were finishing up our exit interviews. Uh, season was over, and literally the last player walked out of my office. I had like twenty five meetings in one day, and uh, like the last player walked out of my office, and then I got a text from uh, an associate of of Greg Byrne, who was the AD at Arizona at the time, who's now the AD at Alabama. And said, hey, I need to talk, speak with you. And I didn't even know who the person was. And I thought, this is kind of interesting. So I called and he said, hey, you know, Greg Byrne, Arizona wants to talk to you. Don't, we can't play around, though. Like, this, this is not a leverage thing to get more out of Nevada, like, whatever. And I was already in a good spot there. So I was like, no, I mean, I would love to talk to him about the, the opportunity. And, and really, when you think about what set it apart was like, I think I just had a feeling that opportunities like this, they don't come along very often. And maybe I wasn't like ready to close the chapter at Nevada just yet. You have to, for lack of a better term, kind of strike while the iron's hot, if you will. And, you know, if I went to Nevada, like with maybe whatever the next thought would be in mind for the next opportunity, if you could have put one school at the top, it would have been Arizona. And so, I mean, it's just kind of crazy how things like that work out and the timing of it. And um, it was really a no-brainer just because I, I knew how special the opportunity was. Well, you know, ultimately, it's the Pac-12, right, which is the, the, the premier college baseball league on the West Coast, right? So, I mean, I mean it, it, while it was probably, you know, difficult for you, I mean, that – had to really weigh on your decision and i mean gosh you guys are picked to finish last in league your first year you guys end up finishing third in league and you talk about all the things falling into place and all things going right for you you guys make it all the way to omaha but not only all the way to omaha but i mean you make it to the the championship series right i mean that must have been just an incredible experience for you yeah, you know, lifetime dream. All your people, you know, the players that, you know, you guys are reporting on, their dream is to probably play in the major leagues, but it's also to go to college and, and play in the College World Series. And as coaches, I mean, that's the pinnacle of our profession. And, you know, if there's something that the last thing I that goes through my head at night when I go to bed is what can I do tomorrow to get us closer to – getting to TD Ameritrade Park in the College World Series. And that's every day of my entire life. So, yeah, that was unbelievable. Um, and, and that team was very unique. You know, nobody really thought we were any good. And the fall, honestly, wasn't very good. Like, I, I if I was to tell you I thought that was going to happen, I'd be completely fabricating that. And, um, you know, we were productive. We worked hard. Uh, we got buy-in took took a little longer maybe than you would think because we had success in the first year uh, but you know we had a really tough non-conference schedule and an opening weekend we played at rice they were you know ranked in the top 12 15 something like that 
and really won the first two games in, in really good baseball, competitive fashion. And that team just developed a lot of confidence and played with a lot of confidence and played with real freedom uh, and, and just really accomplished some special things and, and really played our best at the end of the year. I mean, we were in the loser's bracket in the regional and we played four games in like 36 hours and uh, came out, won the regional, went to Mississippi State for a super regional and had one, two, one run games. It was just an incredibly tough minded uh, team effort there and, and was something that was, was really special. I mean, one base hit short of winning the national championship. Yeah, so that was 2016. Obviously, you're still at Arizona now and, and, and you've had some transition on your coaching staff and I wanted to bring this up, but. I mean, Dave Lawn and Nate Yeske, right? I mean, in, in SoCal and everywhere on the West Coast, I mean, everywhere in college baseball, everybody knows those two names. But, I mean, what what is it about those guys and what, what makes them special and, and what what have they done to elevate this, the level of, you know, your program and you as a coach? Yeah, I think uh, you hit on, you know, two of the most important people relative to our, our program success. Um, you know, starting with, uh, coach lawn, who's been with me, you know, from my first year at, at Nevada, you know, you're talking about a, a coach that's been to Omaha three times with three different programs. And I'm, I'm sure that's probably a short list of assistant coaches that have accomplished that feat. And he's just a, a first class person. And, uh, very good at, at what he does and is, is really consistent. You know, you, you know what you're going to get as a, as a person and uh, created tremendous value to what we were doing at Nevada. I mean, that's a tough league to pitch in. And he did um, an unbelievable job there in those two years. I mean, creating the two pitching staffs that he did and we did was remarkable. And then that 16 team, which we were just talking about, I think we were seventh in the country in ERA and, uh, you know, for a, a program that, you know, had some struggles on the mound prior to us, us getting there and has just done a tremendous job, shifted his role this year to work with the catchers, first baseman, coach first base, and did an exemplary job in that. Um, you know, somebody I, I trust and has just has done a terrific job. And, you know, we've won a lot of games together over seven years and 15 games or whatever we played this year. And, um, you know, just is tremendous human being, tremendous coach. And then, uh, Nate Yeski, you know, he, we had an opportunity to hire, a, a new coach this year and Nate, uh, I reached out to him kind of a pie in the sky, if you will, didn't think it was possible, but you know, when you have a chance to get a pitching coach of that caliber, you do it. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's just plain and simple, uh, how, the, how I can say it and, you know, getting, you know, we're eight or nine months into working with each other. Uh, the thing that stands out to me about Nate is, is the, the passion for his job. Um, you know, finding assistant coaches that care about it as much as the head coach does is, is sometimes hard. That's probably the best uh, compliment I could give an assistant coach. He certainly is that way. And, and we needed a little bit of a reboot on the pitching side of it. And he's given us that and more and, uh, just somebody that I love, you know, getting on the phone with every day and going into the office with every day and, and competing and, and fighting for the highest level of success at, at the rate I try to do. 
and uh, he's a tremendous teacher. I mean, we've made some really good strides, and we made good strides in the first 15 games of the season before it got canceled, and he's obviously helped in, in recruiting tremendously as well. But th- those two guys are are really uh, really at the core of what we do, and I'm, I'm very thankful for them. Yeah, and one of the things that I keep hearing about Coach Jeske is he's very analytical in his approach, and so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, do you guys – do you guys do the whole data analytics piece and, and what sort of elements of it do you guys use and, and how do you guys use it if you do, uh, you know, dive into that element of things? Yeah, I think uh, he separates himself there. I think there's a, a real, real balance with all of those things. I think the best thing about Nate is his ability to communicate in whether we're talking data to development or just pure mechanical stuff to a pitcher or philosophy stuff to a pitcher or mental game the best coaches are the best teachers and they find a way to make the player a really good learner and he's he's one of the best i've ever seen with that relative to developing pitchers and uh the rap soto stuff you know very speaking very specifically uh, the track man stuff with the pitching, it's not just getting the information. He does a really good job of disseminating the information in a way the player can understand it, learn from it, and apply it really, really well. And it's not a complex approach. It's very direct and very simple, and he does a great job with that. You know, And, and we're, we try to be at the front line of, of developing players. So with the, the hitting, we use the blast motion stuff You know, for – at speed, uh, attack angle, on plane, and then the pitching, obviously, with the, the rap soda, with the spin rate, spin efficiency, all of those types of things. And just try to use it as a tool, like we would video or drills or anything like that, to uh, put, the, put the player in the best position to get as good as they can. So with that becoming kind of more and more common, like we at PBR now are, are, are you know, we're doing the track man, we're doing the blast. Um, you know, all that data will be, you know, available for, you know, coaches like you to, to look at and see. And how, how do you think being kind of ahead of that, um, you can use that data to your advantage when it comes to recruiting, right? Because if you see some numbers, you know, a guy may not be, he might be undersized or he might be a little slow afoot, but you see some, some data numbers that really, tell a different story is that something you think that you guys or or other schools or you know certainly the pro guys might use when it comes to recruiting yeah and and the evaluation part of it is a big part of what we do i mean there's a difference for me in recruiting and evaluating recruiting you're trying to for lack of a better term you know sell a player on why they should come play for you evaluating is just hey this is what i think this player is or isn't what they can or can't do and any tool that can add to that is a real positive because it's an inexact science it's extremely competitive and for me you know within reason if there is a tool that we all can use to do our job better then we should use it we're not doing our job to its fullest if we're not and so, you know, having a, a pitching coach that is very good at disseminating that information, it helps us in development. It certainly helps us in recruiting. On the offensive side of it, uh, Coach Wanaka, our volunteer coach, 
who helps me with the offense is a superstar. He's, he's one of the most undervalued, uh, high-impact coaches on anybody's coaching staff. Um, he, he does a great job with, like I said, the blast motion stuff. We have a really good group of student managers that, that disseminate the information really well. And uh, this summer, it was kind of the first time we were really going to jump into adding it to our evaluation, which, which I'm excited about going forward. Yeah, so I know you touched on it a little earlier at your time at USD. You guys had the approach of, you know, hey, we're just going to go out and try to find the best players and, and, you know, recruit the best players. But, I mean, there's got to be more to it than that, right? So, I mean, how, how would you describe the recruiting philosophy at Arizona? Yeah, it's, it's we want to put together the most complete team as possible to win any type of game against any type of team, at any type of park, any type of day. And that is complicated, <laughs> for lack of a better word, when you're dealing with 11.7 scholarships. You can only have 27 on scholarship, 35 on your roster. Uh, sometimes you have to you know, turn away from a player that you like um, just because it doesn't quite fit into what you have. And so... I mean, it's, I don't know if it's a addiction or what, like I'm writing out a roster for the following year and the year after that, literally probably like five times a day. And it's, it's just, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's craziness, or what, but the whole goal of it is try to put together as complete a team as we possibly can. You know, left-handed pitching, right-handed pitching starters have to be able to throw three pitches for strikes really good bullpen options that are different so it never allows a team to settle in with one look uh offensively do you have three really good left-handed hitters in your lineup um that can be a threat at any time obviously everybody knows the importance of the catching shortstop and center field position at our place, uh, athleticism's at a premium because we play in a really big field. And, you know, you can use that for speed on the bases in the outfield. And so these are just a couple of the, the tenants or things that we're looking for and trying to put together the best team possible. And, you know, I, I would always say at, at USD, and this is no knock on these two conferences because it's where I cut my teeth in the West Coast Conference or – the Mountain West, if you worked hard at this, you're going to win. In the Pac-12, it's you better do it to survive kind of thing. Wow. And uh, so the completeness of your team is, is really important. So we're just trying to put together, you know, the right guys for us, uh, for our needs, so we can have a chance to be a NCAA tournament or Omaha caliber team every year. Yeah, and you, you and I have talked about this at length a number of times, Jay. It's just kind of the state of recruiting, right? And I mean, we're seeing eighth graders commit, and it's just, uh, you know, it, it is what it is, right? But, I mean, do you think that it, that's sustainable? Do you think it's a it's a sustainable model? I know the NCAA tried to, you know, they did put in some new rules where guys can't do visits until their junior years, or, like, you can do the official visits now your junior year. And uh, But do you think that the current state of recruiting is sustainable where, you know, we're, kids are – 13 years old and they're being asked to commit to a college or maybe they're not being asked and they just do it. Uh, but 13 year olds are committing to a college and you know, where they're not going to step foot on until they're, you know, 18, 18 and a half. And 
I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was 13 years old, the last thing I was thinking about is where I'm going to go to college. So I'm just curious, like, do you think it's a sustainable model? I don't think it's a one size fits all approach. And I'll give you an ex- the most extreme example for me personally. When Bryce Harper was in eighth grade, I offered Bryce Harper a scholarship to come to USD, mm-hmm. I think. And obviously, I mean, was he $400 million player, been an MVP um those kind of outlier guys it's going to continue to happen Mm -hmm. and that's an extreme example of that but at the same time uh he was from new jersey but offered mike trout a scholarship when he was in august going into his senior year or july one or the other i can't remember and he's the best player on the planet right now so i just don't think for the players specifically it's a one-size-fit-all approach um i think from an evaluating standpoint the more time that you have to make a decision on anything allows you to get more information and you can make a higher quality decision but the nature of the beast if you will right now is it's really competitive and if you're not out there beating the bushes and trying to get the best players that you can in the time frame it's needed to do it somebody else is going to do that so there's a kind of a balance of what's right and what's work or what works and what's necessary with the state of recruiting. And, you know, it, I just don't think it's a one size fit all, fits all approach for the player or for the type of school you have. You just have to do the best job you can given the environment that it is and, and make solid decisions the best you can. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of complicated when 90% of these kids think they're the next Harper or Trout, right? <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. But let's talk about some leadership, Jay, because you've had, you mentioned some of your players that you've had, and I mean, great leaders, right? So how is it that you guys kind of define leadership in your program, uh, you know, currently at Arizona? Well, I think the first uh, first thing I would say is what you just asked me is is harder, seemingly harder to do nowadays than it ever has been before. Because what comes to my mind with leadership is accountability. If you want to be a leader, you have to be accountable to the high standards that the program is going to set forth. As a coach, it's I don't want to say it's easy, but it's my job. Like I have to do that. It's part of my job description to bring work ethic every day, bring the ability to teach every day, the work ethic to recruit every day. And frankly, from my chair, I want to model the things that I want our players to do. Now, I've had 43 years on this earth, earth, a long time in baseball, had some really good mentors. When your players are coming into your program, they're at a different stage in their life. And so cultivating it is setting high standards, uh, trying to hold them accountable to those high standards, uh, educating them. For instance, anything that comes across uh, my desk that I feel like can help our players move towards a higher level of ownership, higher level of leadership, uh, I'll send it to a guy that I think it's really relevant to. And really just, it's something you have to be relentless with. And it takes kind of a special kid to be willing to put themselves out there nowadays as a leader. You know, I I found most kids would rather fit in than step up to the forefront. But when you do get a good player that is willing to do that and, and frankly place the needs of the team above their own, that's a special thing. And, uh, we, we have a few of them that are good and, um, 
the best teams I know certainly certainly have that. You know, you mentioned there the good player that's willing to do that, and I've been on teams, and I'm certain you have, where you know everybody looks to the best player kind of naturally as the leader, right? But I, I mean, I'm sure you've been on a team. I, I certainly have where the best player wasn't the leader. So, how do you safeguard against forcing leadership onto onto a player, or you know, how do you safeguard against trying to make a leader out of a kid who's you know, maybe his personality is kind of just lead by example um, or, you know, not the big vocal rah-rah guys. You know, it's kind of a, it's got to be a fine line, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think when you look at that, it's, it's about getting to know your players. One of the things I do every fall is I'll go out to breakfast or lunch with every guy on our team. And I'm, I'm looking for two things in those meetings is, how is this player motivated? So what can I do to get the very best out of them from a desire standpoint? And then what type of, how do they learn? You know, how, if I can talk to a player and they're really intelligent and they can just take the message verbally and apply it and become a better player for it, a better program guy for it, that's great. But that's not everybody. You know, some guys need to really train it and um, they really need to, some guys need to see it on video and usually it's a combination of those types of things, but really getting to know your players from a motivation and uh, learning standpoint has also helped me just get into their personalities of who can really, you know, step up and be that kind of Michael Jordan alpha doggish, not as a player per se, but at the forefront of, of the team. And uh, it's, it's always a work in progress. You know, I think, one of the positives about this, you know, everybody getting their year back is all of us may have a few older players on our team that have a little more maturity and experience than just, you know, running off to professional baseball after three years. And that's a dynamic that I'm really looking forward to uh, potentially with our next year's team because it, it gives us a, maybe a little bit more of a mature base where a few more leaders will emerge. Yeah, and I'm glad you, you brought that up. And how long do you think, you know, this will impact the college game from a, a numbers or rostering standpoint? I mean, you know, if guys are coming back, you obviously have guys coming in. Um, you know, there's there's some schools that, you know, you know are, that's not an issue with their numbers coming in. Other schools that it might be an issue. Do you think this is something that's going to impact the college game you know, for a year or two or maybe even beyond that from a rostering standpoint? I think it's too early to tell. I think, you know, all of us across the board have, you know, um, have some guys that we'll have back this year that maybe we did not anticipate having back. And frankly, you just, you just got to work it out. That's part of the deal. I know the NCAA is working on some things for this year that could be helpful for both players and programs. And, and hopefully that goes through. And then, uh, I don't see it as a big issue moving forward. I think, you know, when you look on the internet, you know, you would you read some things where you think, gosh, this is like the end of college baseball, or nobody's ever going to be able to come play for like the next five years. And I'm going like, wait a minute, like this is just, you know, everybody needs to work together and figure out what's best for the programs and figure out what's best for the player. And I don't see it maybe a two year kind of impact thing, but I wouldn't imagine much much changes after that so from you know in addition, in addition getting away from the rostering and that sort of piece but 
What's been the most challenging element of this? Obviously, the cancellation of the spring season, you're not on a baseball field. We talked a little bit about having, you know, virtual conferences with your guys. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the rostering. But what what have some of the other challenges, right? Like some something that maybe you're finding to be a challenge or something, an obstacle that, you know, that the general public probably doesn't think about when they come to thinking about, you know, Jay Johnson and the University of Arizona. Yeah, I think this is for all players and all programs. For me, the biggest unknown, if you will, would be is development. I mean, there's such a discrepancy in what our players were doing prior to being shut down to right now because they they're working hard. You know, there's home gyms and garages, there's cages in the backyard, there's you know fields that they're going out and doing speed and agility stuff in. That's all great, and I'm very thankful that they're doing those types of things at the same time you're not playing you know on the road at oregon state in a a war for 72 hours or ucla or arizona state or oregon or washington state or washington or all these cal or all these programs the amount of development that takes place in those types of games is massively significant then you throw in being under the thumb of a, a strength and conditioning coach three or four times a week, you know, early work that they're putting in in the cages with somebody on our coaching staff. Like, that's not there right now. So I think for me, the biggest concern is what is the team, what do the players look like when we do get restarted? And they have to do the best they can do with the situation and what they have. But I think there'll be maybe an influx of talent in college baseball next year, but what that talent looks like relative to guys maybe not playing baseball for eight, nine, or ten months, I think I think that's a big question mark for me right now. Yeah, you talked about the influx of talent, and, and I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to the draft and its impact, right? I mean, it's as it stands today, it's five rounds, potentially up to ten. Do you think that's going to lead to – you know, a lot of guys who maybe would have signed under, you know, given circumstance or normal circumstances that they're going to end up on college campuses. Do you, do you think that will happen? And what's the impact on the college game if it does? Well, I've certainly hoped that it happens. And that's not just from an Arizona baseball standpoint. That's from what I believe is right. I think 99.5% of all players should go to college as opposed to sign out of high school for a number of reasons. And some of them are baseball and some of them are social and some of them are academic and all of them relate towards what type of future, you know, there is for the player. So I'm very hopeful that if there's one positive that comes from this bad situation that we find ourselves in is more of the guys that should go to college to play baseball actually do and then if that's the case again there will be more talent on fields there'll be more talent because some players will return and are a year older and a year stronger and more mature and that is great uh for for college baseball but how much is everybody developing in this time we're away again i think that's just the the big question mark that none of us can answer right now do you think you know there's a lot of talk about you know potentially moving the college football season to to spring and then, you know, flipping around with baseball. And do you think any sort of 
I mean, whether it be radical or not radical, because that seems pretty radical to me. But uh, do you think any changes will come from, you know, the cancellation of this spring season to the college game? Well, I think a big one was obviously everybody getting the year back uh, of eligibility, which I think that was a good move. You know, that that was a that was correct because none of the players had any control over this. And I equated to we only played 15 games. And so let's say one of our players had gotten hurt 15 games into it, they would have had eligibility to get a medical waiver uh, to to get their year back. So I think that was a big, big impact, big change. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about hypotheticals right now of, of things that could happen, you know, more regional type play, um, budget cuts. And I, I certainly hope that everybody does the best they can we get out of this and we can get back to where we were headed just as a, as a college baseball landscape, if you will, because I thought it, it had never really been in a better place as far as where we were going with some things. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with a, a number of those points you just mentioned. Jay, the, that was awesome, man. But before I let you go, we do our uh, coaches rapid fire here. You know, I'm going to fire off a few questions for you. First thing that comes to your mind uh, you know, don't dwell on it too much, but uh, we'll just have a little bit of fun here. So, you ready sure. to roll? Yes. Awesome. All right. So, uh, small ball or gorilla ball? Depends on your team. <laughs> Jay, yes or no, man? No. <laughs> right. I, I like it. All right. Fair, fair I'm going to expand on that one for a minute. In 2016, we led the country in sacrifice bunks. In 2017, we led the country in doubles, and it was purely the makeup and the type of team that we had. Nice. Okay, that's fair, fair enough. I like it. Um, okay, uh, where, where am I? Country or hip-hop? Country. Costco or Sam's Club? I don't go to the grocery store, so oh, neither. Okay. College football <laughs> or the NFL? College football. Trackman or Rapsodo? Trackman. Favorite vacation spot? Hawaii. Mac or PC? I uh, let my wife make that decision for me. Okay. Uh, best singer on the team? None of them. Best dancer on the team? Definitely none of them. <laughs> Favorite stadium you've ever been in? Yankee Stadium. Old one. Go-to song to sing in the shower? Uh, Eye of the Tiger. Favorite sports team? Uh, Arizona Wildcats. Uh, Del Taco or Taco Bell? Del Taco. Awesome. A uh, quick story about Old Yankee Stadium. We went there the year they were tearing it down. Thanksgiving, we were out there. We did a tour of it, and I'm standing in line, and a news station comes up. They ask if they can interview me. Four-minute interview, and at the end, she's like, so how long have you been a Yankees fan? I'm like, oh, I'm not. I'm a San Diego Padres fan. I'm just visiting. She was not happy. <laughs> oh, yeah. They take it pretty seriously back. It was pretty funny, man. Jay, so, man, I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and spending some time with us and sharing your thoughts, man. Can't thank you enough. You got it. Thanks, Les. I want to thank Jay Johnson for joining us on the podcast today. Be sure to check out PrepBaseballReport.com for all your news and information. Until next time, we'll see you at the yard.